In the late 1800s, a group of white male leaders gathered to plan how they would build institutions of higher learning throughout the South. These Baptist colleges would be established primarily for the education of pastors, but as they were planning, an important question arose. Where should they be? What is the most conducive environment for the moral and spiritual formation of young clergy? Legend has it, one prudent leader stood up and said, they should be built at least 50 miles from the nearest sin. And that became the philosophy. I don't know about you, but I've never seen sin on a map. Traditionally, the word sin describes an activity, not a place or location, 50 miles from the nearest sin. What did they mean by sin? Campbell University, my alma mater, was built exactly 50 miles from the city of Raleigh. Wingate University and Gardner-Webb were both built about 50 miles east and west of the city of Charlotte. For those Baptist leaders who said 50 miles from the nearest sin, the city was a synonym for sin, a place of degradation, a hotbed for ungodly activities like drinking, music, dancing, and what those behaviors in their minds always inevitably lead to, the most dangerous and terrifying sin imaginable, sex. The title of the show, Sex in the City, would have seemed unnecessarily redundant to those Southern Baptist men because for them, sin, sex, and the city were interchangeable words. To speak of one was to conjure the other, and so they believed that the city was no place for the moral and spiritual formation of ministers. Instead, they demanded that ministers must be trained at least 50 miles away from the nearest city, far enough to ensure that they would not be sullied by the evil and wickedness taking place in those unholy metropolitan areas. But those Baptist men were poor anthropologists. They should have known more about human nature, having read the Bible and the book of Genesis. The one thing you tell a human being is forbidden will become the very thing they desire the most. Sin is exactly what my friends at Campbell and I were looking for when we got in our cars on Saturday night and drove 50 miles into the city of Raleigh. However, to our dismay, we found no new sins in the city that we did not already have back in Boys Creek. Today, people still view cities as sinful places of crime and degradation because we are unable to see that the sins of the city are the result of policy decisions, economic devastation, defunded school systems that mostly injure the poor, black, and brown folk. We've racialized the city to the point where words like urban and inner city have become dog whistles. Yet the irony is that those very same sins caused by economic deprivation now plague rural areas as well. Jesus says nothing about sex in the Gospels. 
Not a single word. He barely mentions marriage only to say it's a human institution with no eternal significance. He once offered conditions for divorce, but nothing about sex, not who, what, where, when, or how to do it. Nothing. All we know is that he hung out with prostitutes and sinners. On the other hand, Jesus talked a lot about the city, particularly the city of Jerusalem. In Matthew, he said, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. In Luke, Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem and said, If only you had recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus saw the city as a place of violence, a place where God's children were scattered like chickens with no mother to care for them, exposed and vulnerable and lost. Violence is far more than physical harm. It is emotional, spiritual, and political as well. Jesus told a different story about the violence in the city than one that we have heard. A story that is more in line with Coretta Scott King who once said, I must remind you that starving a child is violence. Neglecting school children is violence. Punishing a mother and her family is violence. Discrimination against a working man is violence. Ghetto housing is violence. Ignoring medical need is violence. Contempt for poverty is violence. And when I reflect on the story Jesus told of city folk as a brood of chicks without a mother, scattered without anyone to care for them, I can't help but hear the words of that famous spiritual and civil rights anthem, Sometimes I Feel like a motherless child. Jesus' pleas for peace in the city were reminiscent of the words of the prophets who came before him like Jeremiah, where God commanded, Seek the peace of the city where I have sent you in exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its peace you will find your peace. However, in spite of the power of Jesus' tears, his prayers of concern for the peace of the city, his longing to care for the most vulnerable within it, these words of peace have not been the most popular words of Jesus about the city. That designation goes to his words from the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. These words of Jesus have become our most favored and famous teaching about the city. The metaphor of a community of people shining like a city built on a hill that is lighting up the world with their good works. Why? Why is this the story of the city? St. Augustine wrote his epic story, The City of God, after Rome was sacked by barbarians in 410 A.D., Many claimed the city had fallen as punishment from the gods for adopting Christianity and abandoning Roman practices. But Augustine responded by asserting that Christianity had actually saved the city of Rome and that Rome's downfall was the result of internal moral decay. 
In his treatise, Augustine presented all human history as the conflict between the earthly city and the city of God. But despite the fact that Christianity had already become the official religion of the empire, Augustine declared the mission of the city of God was spiritual rather than political and argued that the church should be concerned with the mystical heavenly city rather than with earthly politics. An easy claim to make when Christians already had all the power. From that moment on, a new story of the city was told. And many people of faith and good conscience today, like Augustine, have compartmentalized the spiritual and the political, segregating them so far from each other that they never inform or challenge one another. Augustine's bifurcation of the spiritual and the political landed on these shores and on top of the people living here. In 1603, when the Puritan pastor and first governor of Massachusetts, John Winthrop, got off the boat and preached a sermon entitled, A Model for Christian Charity. He used the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount to plant the first seeds of a story that became known as Manifest Destiny and Christian Nationalism and American Exceptionalism. He claimed in that sermon, For we must consider that we shall be as a city on a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Winthrop believed the colonists were endowed with special spiritual favor by God, and they claimed the land was theirs by God for the taking, and as we all know, genocide followed. Since Winthrop... The words of Jesus have been used over and over again to tell the story of America as a city on a hill, shining as an example for all the world. This familiar phrase has become the dominant image of American exceptionalism, and every president since JFK, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush again, Obama, Trump, and Biden have now all used this phrase to tell America's story as one of being chosen, having elect status, a divine calling, and a sovereign purpose in the world. Yet as inspiring as that story may be, it is not what Jesus meant when he used that phrase. It has been taken completely out of context. Proof texts in an act of theological malpractice and misused in the service of imperial mythology and propaganda. What we American Christians have never been able to understand is that divine election is not something that we can steal from the Jewish people and pronounce upon ourselves. It is not something we can take. It is something we must work to discover and find ourselves caught up in. Which is why I believe the poet laureate Amanda Gorman was right on Inauguration Day when she inferred that it is not the city on a hill that we conquer or claim that matters, but the hill we climb that truly determines who we are. We climb the hill and become a light to the world by seeking the peace of the city in which we find ourselves. A peace that is defined, according to Jesus, by the care and protection of the most vulnerable. 
The story of Jesus in Mark offers a vision of what it looks like to seek the peace of the city. And it begins in the home of Peter's mother-in-law who has a fever. Jesus takes her by the hand and literally lifts her up. But then it sounds like she got up and fixed everybody lunch. This passage has been wildly misinterpreted by patriarchal preachers to claim that a woman's place is in the home or in the kitchen serving food. But this is actually the first time in the Gospels the verb to serve is used, a word that would go on to define discipleship. It is where we get the word deacon. It only appears two more times in the Gospels. First, Jesus uses it in reference to himself and his mission by claiming that he is a servant who has come not to be served but to serve. The second is at the crucifixion, where Mark describes the women at the cross as disciples who followed Jesus from Galilee, served him faithfully, and came up with him all the way to Jerusalem. This editorial comment about the women is a summary of their faithful discipleship from the beginning to the end of the gospel in terms of service. The women were the true loyal followers who, unlike the men, stuck by Jesus and practiced servanthood from Galilee all the way to Golgotha and beyond. Instead of reinforcing Victorian Southern gender roles, the writer of Mark's gospel was overturning the historic devaluation of women and holding them up as models of Christian discipleship. In fact, it is only after Jesus saw Peter's mother-in-law in action that he took on the title of a servant for himself. What an impression she must have made upon him. Is it not possible Jesus was so inspired by the selfless service he saw in Peter's mother-in-law that he learned from her, imitated her, and adopted her faithful activity as his mission and purpose in the world, to live as one who has come not to be served, but to serve. Mark's gospel moves so fast It's hard to see the growth and evolution of Jesus' own self-understanding and sense of calling, and yet we see it here, because after being inspired by the faithful servanthood of Peter's mother-in-law, Jesus went outside and started healing the sick and casting out demons for what we are told is the entire city. This was the first time that Jesus was surrounded and swamped by a crowd in the Gospel of Mark, and I imagine that Jesus might have been a little too inspired by Peter's mother-in-law. To the point that he overfunctioned and overexerted himself, to the point of overstimulation and complete exhaustion. Perhaps he was even stricken with grief over how many people in the city were suffering and how daunting the task was before him. So it's no surprise that we are told he got up early the next morning while it was still very dark and no one was around and the other disciples were still asleep and he left the home of Peter's mother in law. And went out alone to a deserted place to pray. There's an entire spiritual practice implied in Jesus' response to overstimulation and exhaustion. He embarks on a quest to go and remember himself. To remember his story. 
to remember the story of God, to find healing and wholeness, and to rediscover his calling through retreat and solitude and silence. Seeking the peace of the city is often overwhelming. And so it is liberating and life-giving to know that even Jesus stepped away from time to time for a retreat into solitude and silence. We should follow his lead because it is the deep inner soul work of healing and reconnecting with God's story and our own that fills us with the strength and wisdom we need to sustain the outer work of loving our neighbor and seeking justice. We must do our work individually so we can show up collectively. Healers and activists, organizers and trainers, managers and leaders who are unable to retreat for solitude and silence can't show up as healthy, integrated people, and the oil in their lamps burns out far earlier than expected. James Baldwin once wrote, We can only face in others what we can face in ourselves. On this confrontation depends the measure of our wisdom and compassion. This energy is all that one finds in the rubble of vanished civilizations and the only hope for ours. From a very young age, Courtney Martin thought it was her job to save the world. Her parents tried to save the world, and so would she. As soon as she graduated from college and had her chance, she was marching against the war and working to register people to vote. But despite all the marching and the phone calls, her candidate lost. The war raged on. The wealth disparity grew larger and larger. Her first nonprofit job was an exercise in disillusionment, and freelance writing on the side was going nowhere fast. She felt as if she'd been sold a bill of goods. The real world, it turns out, was messy, complicated, bureaucratic, and painful. Five years after college, she'd discovered the world was cruel, an unjust place, and far from saving it, she felt like a failure. Her flame was extinguished. Then one day, she was watching a documentary profiling activists who were unknown to the broader world, and one of them described their work as a failure, and Cornell West, the philosopher, responded, yes, it's failure, but how good a failure it is. How good a failure it is. That's when she realized there's no surefire way to do good in the 21st century. There are no pure answers. There's only occasional triumphs and good failures, which is what you achieve when you aim to transform a broken system and end up healing one broken soul. In her memoir, Martin writes, it turns out our charge is not to save the world. It is to live in it, flawed and fierce, loving and humble. The bureaucracy we face, the scale of our challenges, the intractable nature of so many of our most unjust institutions and systems, all these add up to a colossal potential for disappointment. No matter. We must strive to make the world better anyway. 
We must strive to make our friendships, families, neighborhoods, cities, and nations more dignified, knowing that it might not work and struggling anyway. She says we must dedicate ourselves each and every morning to being the most kind, thoughtful, courageous human beings who have ever walked the earth and to know that it still won't be enough and yet we must keep on doing it anyway. When the disciples found Jesus in the desert and told him everyone had been searching for him, Jesus didn't say, you know, friends, it's just too much. There are too many sick people and I can't heal them all. There are too many demons and I can't cast them all out. This was just one city. Imagine how many more sick people and how many more demons there are in all the other cities. No, Jesus didn't say that. He said instead, let's keep on going. Let's keep on grinding. Let's keep on fighting. Let's keep on working. Let's keep on serving. Let's keep on healing the sick and exercising as many demons as we can. If you save one life, you save the world, they say. So let's keep on going to all the neighboring towns and continue proclaiming the message of good news because that's what I came here to do. Philosopher Alistair McIntyre once wrote, we can only answer the question, what am I to do? If we can answer the prior question, what stories do I find myself in? This story we find ourselves in today is a lot like the story of Jerusalem, a city filled with economic violence, scattered with vulnerable people, suffering like motherless children. We're still 50 out of 50 in upward mobility, still segregated schools and neighborhoods, still have homeless people living in encampments on the streets, still don't have enough affordable housing. The task before us is daunting, but it's also thrilling. The real reason young ministers like myself drove 50 miles to the nearest sin is because we were trying to find out what story we were in and what that story had to do with the story of God that we were being trained to tell. Jesus understood the story that he was in, the story of Israel, the story of Galilee, the story of Jerusalem that killed the prophets, the story of a God who had called him to be a servant that was seeking the peace of the city by caring for the poor and vulnerable. And when he was overwhelmed, he retreated in order to rediscover that story, in order to remember who he was and what he was called to do. Like Jesus, we too are a part of many stories. The story of Israel and Jesus, the story of the church, the story of God, and the story of this city in which we find ourselves. A city, a world that is always filled with people in need of peace and love and protection, a city in desperate need of people who will come, not to be served, but to serve. And so the only question that remains is, what story are you in? And what are you going to do? Amen. Amen.